Coming up next, the bookening reads Persuasion. <laughs> Persuasion. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to the bookening. It's me, Mr. Chuckles himself, Nathan Alberson. And we've got, with his chest, it's Brandon Chastine. <laughs> He's, got he's a very, not a man without a chest. No, he's a man with a chest. Oh, yeah. No gelded, geldling he. No gelded, geldling he. Nope. <laughs> it's Brandon Chastain. Ghost hey. Brandon. The pa... Nope. Nope. Oh, no. False. The... Scholar. The scholar who's a baller of reading. Yes, sir. As yes, once sir. Heard. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Brandon Chastain. Hey. And no. the reason I mentioned his chest was because he had his shirt was kind of unbuttoned. Yeah. And, it was, you know, you know. It's just one of those yeah. things. Let's meet Jake Menzel. Let's do it. Beastmaster Funky Town. Beastmaster Funky Town. So we should explain to people we're trying this. We recorded twenty minutes of brilliance where we were all high on paint humes, paint humes, <laughs> humes. David I still humes. think David maybe humes. we should leave the room for a minute and come back. <laughs> no, Jake, we've got to record this episode. But we did open the door, and the air is circulating. I already feel better, and Brandon already feels better. I'm right next to the fumes, and he's right next to the fumes. <laughs> <laughs> Your senses is just going numb. That's what that is. Your senses are going numb. We're going to talk about persuasion, but first, we have to have a little fun. That's right. It. Brandon, who's your favorite Ninja Turtle? Oh, man. Donatello. <laughs> he's a party dude. Yeah. No. No. He's not. <laughs> no, no, Donatello's no. the smart Don- Donatello's cool, but rude. Forgive no. me. No, no, that's Raphael. You don't know Donatello your Ninja Turtles, Donatello does do machines. Oh, Donatello does machines. Well, I, I never liked Donatello. He's the worst Ninja Turtle, actually. And he was always my favorite, too. I'm with you. F-O-O-L-S. That's what I have to say about. So who's your favorite, you. Michelangelo? Yeah, well, he, he doesn't a, even know who they are. Yeah, Michelangelo was a party dude, so he was pretty cool. And then Raphael was cool because he had a kind of a Brooklyn accent or whatever it was. He talked like this, and uh, he had a chip on his shoulder. Yeah, on his big green shoulder. You probably like Leonardo best, though. No, like nobody loser. liked Leonardo. You probably liked Leonardo best. Please. Be humble. <laughs> Sit down. <laughs> Sit down. Be humble. I'm leaving that in. Um, <laughs> hey, the plane. What? The plane, Brandon Chastain. Hey. Possessed of no beauty. No. No, no, no. The plane is going over. Yeah. Indicating baggage check. Check. <laughs> indicating baggage check. It indicates baggage check. Part of the show where we talk about the baggage that we bring to this book. And what I thought would be fun is to ask you guys not just to trace the baggage of before we started recording the booking, but we've done now, this is our fourth time at BAT talking about Jane Austen, a Jane Austen book. So maybe we can trace the development of your thinking about Jane Austen since the booking started. Let's not forget to include, like, let's, let's be a little meta, a little meta textual here and remember that the booking has happened and it's affecting us and it's all subjective and there is no reality. Really no sentences are true per Bertrand Russell and his what's that thing called? What his theory of theory of descriptions? Yeah, you know about that thing, Brandon. I know Bertrand Russell. Turns yeah. out there's no sentence that you can. It's uh, the certain sentences are false that you wouldn't expect if you if you yeah, think about. Them. But it's better all, that they be false than that they be. You have the inner contradictions. Then they have. This, yeah. yeah, it resolves certain inner contradictions by making them false. And there's really no objective truth at the center of things. And no. Yeah. And the center cannot hold. The center cannot hold. Your uh, anarchy is loosed upon the world. Well, what beast is this that slouches towards Bethlehem to be born? That's my question. It's Brandon Chastain, and he's hey. going to give us 
his baggage. He is that beast. I <laughs> am the beast. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon, what baggage did you bring to <clears throat> Persuasion? People who have listened to my context in the past know that Jane Austen wasn't a significant part of my literary development grow- growing up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As she wasn't the same for me as she was for you. But I, I enjoyed her. I read Pride and Prejudice when I was in high school. A couple, um, I think I read Emma Sensen's Sins- uh, Sins- Ability is one I haven't read. I bl- no. I, yes, we share the one that we haven't read. Well, the Sense and Sensibility is the one that I've never read. Yes, Sense and Sensibility is the one that all three of us have in common as, <sighs> as this, not, not having read. read. Because it's really difficult. She's like Shakespeare in the sense that you can't remember if you've read the book or if you watched the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And which I have watched the Sense and Sensibility. I have movie. too. It's quite good. Alan Rickman plays Colonel Brandon. Always. Always. That's my impression of Brandon's impression. Always. 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 How, how, how? I have a machine gun. <laughs> Is that how I do, Rickman? A spoon, cousin? Because <laughs> it hurts worse, you twit. It's dull, you twit. <laughs> yeah, it's more. All right. It's no. Um, what are we talking about? Uh, Jane Austen. Alan Jane Rick. Austen, yeah. yeah. And so when I started to date my lovely wife, mm-hmm. we watched Pride and Prejudice, the movie, the big long movie with, what's his name? Colin Firth. But I didn't really take Austen seriously until I got to undergrad, in my undergrad years. In your undergrad years. When I was an undergrad, there's the sentence I'm going <laughs> When for. you were an undergrad. Sentences together today. <laughs> That pull made no sense. <laughs> if I was a rich man, it vaguely had if the same I was rhythm a rich man, as what Brandon said. Was, there was a class that when everybody I loved. I actually didn't take it. Okay. All the other English majors took this class. Great this, story, Brandon. With this professor named Bonnie Blackwell. Okay. And she was known for being the feminist on campus. She mm. was best friends with the Wait, hip. the one feminist on mm-hmm. campus? Well, she was like the uber feminist. She was- <laughs> Let's pick Brandon's yeah, 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 baggage yeah. part. She wasn't the. She wasn't the only. She was the the feminist. <laughs> she wasn't the only feminist. But she was like the. She was one of the uber feminists. Okay. She was like a representative. A. She was the green light in Gatsby <laughs> of feminism. <laughs> and the guy who would stand out, her Gatsby was this hipster philosophy professor. They taught honors traditions courses together. And traditions. I had yeah, traditions. <laughs> and I had them, and you could tell that they had this on again, off again relationship. It was weird. She brought her greyhounds into class with her. And they would sit in a corner and stare at you during class. <laughs> like a Disney so, villain or something. Yeah. <laughs> she, yeah, she kind of was, like Cruella de Vil. But she taught this class, and everybody talked about Austin, and they talked about how she was really opening their eyes to the inner feminisms and tensions in Austin that they had never seen before. I had thought this was probably mal- malarkey, even at that point. <laughs> malarkey, do you like that word? <laughs> that was the word you were using back yeah, then? That's my grandfather's word. That was all malarkey. I say... <laughs> Yeah, it was malarkey. I was mm-hmm. trying to think what to say. I've always had a very troubled relationship with the university, mm-hmm. and it led to some pretty wild and dark places in my <laughs> life, but we won't go into that today. The, the whole point being, it got me to start reading her again. Mm-hmm. And so I reread Pride and Prejudice, and I was like, this is good, but I don't see the feminism here. Mm-hmm. And that, But still, she wasn't. she didn't change my world even at that point. So we get to the bookening, and what the bookening has really shown me with Austin... And I don't think it's just because she's one of your favorites, but that definitely, opinions of friends matter. Sure. And so we get to the bookending. You love her a lot. We start reading her, and I have come to realize over the last four years just how much insight she does have into character and how great her writing is and 
how perceptive she is. And it's, it's helped to clarify things I knew and saw as an undergrad and even in high school, but has brought them more to the forefront. And I think she's fantastic. There you and go. And this book fits right in there. I read this one first a few years ago. Thought it was great. Read it again this time, and we'll find out if I still think it's we'll great. We'll find out. Well, we turn from Brandon to Jake and ask him the same question. Your baggage, Jake. Well, I had seen the movies or some of the movies, and uh, I thought that Austin was frills and stupid romance and persuaded by, mm-hmm. my, by my good friend Nathan. I read Pride and Prejudice while I was teaching and dating and relationships series to our college group. Was that Back actually at the day? Yeah, that was at the same was. time, wasn't it? Was it was at the same time. You yeah. guys were a regular Anne and Wentworth. Right. Well, <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe a regular Anne and Lady Russell, except for I didn't give oh, yeah. Jake bad advice. There you go. It was good advice. Maybe a, late, a regular. I like that you stayed with women. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of uh, a regular Knightley and, and Darcy. Darcy. Yep. In the extended <laughs> Austin Cinematic Universe. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that'd be amazing. <laughs> that I'd, would be amazing. I'd go see that. <laughs> They're all friends. Come on, Disney. Guys would be like, how are we all? Do it. How are we all incredibly handsome (laughs) and rich and sardonic? Wentworth, oh, I'm the one Navy guy who's not weathered and leathered. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow I've gone off for eight years and I still look beautiful. Jake, continue. Pray. That was my first experience of Austin, and I loved her from the word go. We turned around and we read Emma, and I had a little harder time getting into Emma, but really enjoyed it by the time it was done. And then we turned around and went for Mansfield Park, and I loved that book. My appreciation for Austin has only grown. Yeah. And respect for his only grown. Coming into this book, from the first page, I felt like I was just safe in good hands. And you don't get to feel that way with authors, Period. You don't. Well, you just don't get to feel that way. Ready Player people. Two is going to hit the shelves one of these days, and and then Brandon will feel that way about mm-hmm. it. I will, but I normal was, people don't feel that way. Yeah. I guess I should clarify for the listeners that I didn't not like Jane Austen as a high schooler, and I think I said that right. She just hasn't had as high estimation for me as she has. With the booking has helped there. Yay, the booking. We are great. I'm great. That's what I wanted Jake and Brandon to say. Nathan, you're great. Thank you so much. And so they have. Um, <laughs> with some clever editing. <laughs> <laughs> You're great, Nathan. Yeah, Nathan's great. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> uh, I love your voice. <laughs> My baggage. I like Jane Austen a lot, and I always have. Since what age, Nathan? The age of reason. Whoa. When was that? The 1700s? Yeah. Yeah. Since the 1700s. The age of Aquarius. The age of Aquarius. 1960. Since the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Wow. That's a long time. You hear that, Jane? Mm-hmm. But here's the thing that's changed since last time. For the first three years of the booking, I was talking about going back in time and marrying Jane Austen. I'm not going to do that. I've decided she's not good enough for me. You found it be- even better. I found it even better. Yes, sir. <laughs> found it even better. <laughs> <laughs> Man, Jane Austen, that persuasion. Let's talk about it, guys, eh? Yeah. You ready to talk about some persuasion? Yeah. I thought we could start by talking about Jane Austen's craft. What is it that makes Jane Austen so page-turnable? Are you opening the floor to discussion? I'm opening the floor. The floor is now opened. I don't know. We always talk about the characters and stuff like that. I thought it might be interesting to talk about the mechanics. How does Jane Austen do what Jane Austen does? For a little bit. Maybe that, maybe maybe there's nothing to say, but 
Well, she writes good page-turning books. <laughs> How? It would seem on the face of it that so, these books would not be at all interesting because yeah. they're mostly exposition dumps in between well, some so, witty dialogue sections. Uh, I think what I said earlier... Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, they seem to be... What were you saying? Yeah, expedition dumps in between witty dialogue, which the dialogue is good, but and then it's a bunch of people going for walks and thinking about things and having conversations in drawing rooms, and nothing really happens. Yeah, except things do happen. And so what I said earlier about Wentworth being like a Darcy or a Knightley, mm-hmm. that was, it was a joke, but it's also true. She does have a formula that she works with, and it's a formula that she works with because it's one that works. She works with it because it works. Mm-hmm. Hey, figure that. Hey. Um, and so the formula takes what would have been popular at the time with novels, the classic love story, and often a triangle will be involved. You'll have characters that are introduced, like Cap- what's Captain Brinnick? Was that his name? Uh, Benwick. Benwick. The, the poet The guy. poet that you think may be a love interest for Anne. And then you have the guy who is also going to be a love interest, but then you find out it's a scoundrel. Think of, all, I mean, if we go back to... I think pretty much all the novels we've read, right? There's that that's there's that character. There's Henry in uh, Mansfield Park, Park Wickham, Wickham in Pride and Prejudice. Who would be that character? And and Emma, it's Frederick. Yeah, Frank? yeah. He he actually ends up being kind of okayish. He's he's the one that gets kind of turned Frank? on its head, but she still has yeah. that same formula where you have the other guy, maybe kind of the bad boy in the case of the guy in this one though, uh, William. Mm-hmm. Not the bad guy until you find out at the end in a shocking turn of events that he actually is a bad guy. <laughs> Right, because what, I was shocked. Yeah, uh, that's why I said it like that. Shocking turn of events. <laughs> but why? Well, I guess we'll talk about his character. So she's playing with she's playing with the types that she has, but she still has a type of story she's telling, mm-hmm. and that's one reason it's compelling is because you want to see who she's going to end up with. I'm sorry, that was amazing. I just like the incidental rhyming there, propelling and compelling. She has a story that she's telling, and so the story is compelling, <laughs> and that's how she's propelling her plot along. <laughs> That the plots that she uses, the, her plot devices, they're compelling. Mm-hmm. They propel the story. And so they keep us interested because in classic comedy fashion, we want to know, will they or won't they? And we still see it. Yeah, but any yeah. idiot knows they will. Yeah, but it's still just like everybody, every idiot knew that Jim and Pam would too in The Office, right? What made those first three seasons so intriguing was watching how it worked out and how are they going to make it happen? When's it going to happen What's going to bring about the event for it to happen? With Jane Austen, it's usually a letter. <laughs> Followed by a intimate conversation where they talk about all the misunderstandings that they've had yeah. and all of Oh, the... I was silly. No, I was silly. No, yeah, you were silly. <laughs> when you were doing this thing, I thought this, but yeah. I was actually thinking that. Oh, I thought you were this, but you were actually... Oh, I yeah. was... Let me ask you this, so though. Then to, can I, I tie it back yeah, to what yeah, I was saying? Though, with So there's a sense that she is very formulaic, and I found that interesting reading it this time is to see how formulaic she can be. Mm-hmm. And yet, and I would argue quite a bit like Dickens in this case, Dickens is very formulaic too. And yet they both find a way for each of their novels, whatever you think of Dickens, every Dickens novel is a very different novel. Mm-hmm. And so whatever you think of Austen, every Austen novel is a very different novel. Persuasion is completely different than... It's completely different than everything else that we've yeah. read. And I found myself wondering as we went, if I was seeing... Well, what I want to say is this is the least sophisticated of the novel of her novels that we've read. And I've wondered how much of that is just her being on death's door when she wrote it, being on death's door when she wrote it, it maybe not having been 
finished or revised to the degree that she she would if she had prepared it for publication herself. <laughs> I think, or, or, or how much of that was just is just me being so familiar with Austin at this point that it seemed less sophisticated. Well, I've heard a lot of people say, or I've I've read critical things that not not critical in the sense of being critical, but critics say that it's one of her more sophisticated or more adult. Uh, I think they latch onto the melancholy that's kind of at the heart of it, and they just say this is a more the worldview is more sophisticated in this well, one. Well, Anne is more sophisticated right. as a protagonist than her other than her than her other protagonists as a disappointed twenty seven year old instead of yeah twenty eight year old. Uh, or 27 you're right yeah, that's, yeah yeah maybe she turned 28 by the end of it 29. i think because i thought wentworth is a more sophisticated <laughs> hero right but that doesn't mean that the work itself as a work of art is more sophisticated but nathan's right a lot of critics look at this as being her most sophisticated work but i'm with you i thought not mechanic i i would say there are some very sophisticated things about it mm-hmm. very mature in terms of worldview and i mean like Anne is her most mature yeah here, a heroine by yeah, but far. But a heroine like Emma is not the work of an immature writer. She may be an exactly. immature character, but she's developed by a master craftsman who exactly. doesn't need any more craftsmanship than she already has. Exactly. And that's the thing that I, I, I don't know that persuasion has any more sophistication and craftsmanship or mechanics or anything than any of those other. And even novels. if you want to talk about the melancholy and you kind of latch on to the romanticism i'd say mansfield park has more of that yeah, dark romanticism yeah than when, I, when I say that that Anne's a more mature hero i don't mean that i mean that Anne the the character of Anne is a more is more mature as a person not jane austen the writer was more mature as she more, came in to Anne mm-hmm. and developed a more mature character that's not what i'm here we go write us up for write me up for being condescending write the book up for being condescending i think a very simple minded critic Mm-hmm. A very one-dimensional or two-dimensional critic can see, look at Anne as a more mature person, find themselves relating to Anne, and therefore be blind to everything else going on, and just assume that it's that means this is a more mature work and a more sophisticated work. And I don't, I don't think that yeah. those things are equal. I've been disappointed in my life. <laughs> I relate to this. Disappointments I, are a thing that happen to people like me. <laughs> I'm th- I'm in my 30s and I'm reading Jane Austen finally and this one is about somebody who's been through stuff like me and not just a didn't meet a yeah. prince you know Darcy and so is... this is therefore more sophisticated no no it's actually not in its storytelling more sophisticated I would say it's it is a different story I would say it is more romantic actually it is it, more it's the most romantic thing that we've read by her in terms it of feels what actually that fits I, that trope I mean this one has yeah. like a big it's a straight romance you know my I can no longer contain my heart it has like a big speech by the guy at the end it actually yeah has even like, that letter was the, like yeah that's super what I meant romantic. The, the letter yeah 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 it's just like this is the thing, like when people when they re- when they filmed it's the, the scene. It's the crap of, that yes, exactly. It's the crap the they put with, into Pride and Prejudice yeah. that it was never there. You have bewitched me, body and soul. The way that they did that yeah. whole thing. Well, that line's not even in the book, which but, is interesting because yeah. this book, if you think of Jane Austen seeing herself somewhat through her protagonists, mm-hmm. Anne is more self-aware and I think even aware of her surroundings than yes. her other protagonists have ever been. Right. Yeah. So things that kept it striking makes me, me so sad. Yeah, things that kept striking me would be she would keep 
realizing maybe Wentworth's paying attention to her, maybe Wentworth... She knew. Like she, she read would look it up all. and then she could see Wentworth was looking away. A lot of the but comedy that, in the other three books is the people misreading those. Yeah. And we as an audience are like, uh, come on. Yeah. The Can't you see what's going on here? Th- or we have to guess and we decide, but no, she's just sort of like, Anne sees everything clearly yeah. and mm. is expositing the, for us exactly what's happening. Yeah, because we're at a point in her life where she's eight years after this traumatic event. Yeah. And she now realizes... Not that she shouldn't have listened to her friend, but that she's grown. Her friend was wrong. Yeah, her friend was wrong. And that's a sweet speech at the end. I'm sure we'll talk about it, where she says that she wasn't wrong in listening to her friend. But like, well, where she is talking to, is it, what's the Captain Hart? Not Hart straight, Captain Harvright, Hartwright? Harville, Harville. Harville, Captain Harville, that's right. At the end, and they're talking about the difference between men and women. Mm -hmm. And you know that she's saying a lot of what she's saying to him because she thinks that Wentworth's listening. Mm-hmm. And she, yeah. she can kind of tell the Wentworths over there pausing and maybe dropping things because he is listening. And there's just a self-awareness with the protagonist that you don't see with any of the others. So there is a maturity. And I agree that that doesn't necessarily make the novel more mature. A maturity Maybe. and an agency. Like, does I'm trying to think of the other ones we've read. I think Anne probably has the most t- to do with accomplishing her own happiness yeah, more so than Emma yeah. Fanny well, and that's or the moral. Lizzie, you know did. that that quote at the end. You know, she comes to her final chapter and she's like, "Now here's the chapter where I tell you what the moral of the story is." Right. Yeah. As she's become accustomed to doing in right. her books, who can be in doubt of what followed? When any two young people take it into their heads to marry, they are pretty sure by perseverance to carry their point. Be they ever so poor, or ever so imprudent, or ever so little likely to be necessary to each other's ultimate comfort. This may be bad morality to conclude with. But I believe it to be truth. And if such parties succeed, how should a Captain Wentworth and an Anne Elliot, with the advantage of maturity of mind, consciousness of right, and one independent fortune between them, fail of bearing down every opposition? Like they could have just barreled through eight years ago and been happy, kind of thing. Yeah, they were going to get it done eventually. Right. The mature people, they were bent on each other. They were going to get it done, and that is what makes it the most romantic of all her books. I, I would, I would cringe at classifying Mansfield Park or even Pride and Prejudice or Emma as romances because that genre is such a flat thing and these books don't fit neatly into... Well, and even in her most accessible work, which I would say is Pride and Prejudice, I mean, I know who's going to argue it's Pride and Prejudice, it really doesn't have a nice little cathartic romantic thing at the end where... but, But this one, I don't, I wouldn't hesitate to put in the category of a romance Mm-hmm. And, and not not even really blink, you know. It's almost like, and I allow, you know, I, let her have it, you know. Oh sure. Well, it's almost like in the other novels, there's there's always the section where the the heroine realizes she's messed up or she's lost or you know, Darcy doesn't already proposed to me. I turned him down. Oh, it turns out he's a great guy. Oh, Mister Knightley's awesome, but he's actually interested in my dumb friend Harriet or whatever. There's always that section in most of the novels. We as adult readers with successful relationships or just with a little experience we're able to look at it and sort of laugh and say oh well you know everybody has to go through that to get to their their happy spot but really this is just a young person way overthinking something that's obviously going to work out and it's kind of sweet that way actually but in this one there's actually some real palpable longing she maybe she just missed her chance. I mean, we know she's not. She didn't really. But she didn't miss her. We chance understand in story terms, because, eight years is a long time to yeah. lose to making the wrong choice. Yeah, and 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 doesn't actually have anything to learn. No, her arc is not an arc of 
maturation or humbling or any of the other things that you see in in those other novels. Her arc is just a, will Providence smile on me or won't it? There's some maturation with Wentworth, him yeah. getting over his anger. Yeah, he has to get over himself. And his bitterness. But she, she never does. Yeah. she And she concludes, and I think rightly, that she was never in the wrong. Yeah. She was... Well, we might as well address that point. Well, uh, yeah. And so one of the scenes I was thinking about was when she knows that William Elliot's flirting with her, and then she sees Wentworth respond, and she wonders if it had made him jealous. Right. So she knows it made yeah, him jealous. Yeah, she knows it she made doesn't him even wonder. Yeah, and so again, there's just this, there's this self-awareness just th- throughout Anne's in particular, which makes this book feel different as far as the heroines go than any of the other ones did. Can I make one more point before we yeah, get to no, your question? Yeah, absolutely. I'm just, yeah. Just as far as her storytelling. I think something else that's pretty blatant here that's not quite as blatant in the other ones. Mm-hmm. So whatever she calls the book, Sense and Sensibility, Persuasion, Pride and Prejudice, you know that those are going to be the themes that play throughout. With Mansfield Park, we talked about how theater was so important to the way she structured that. So she does have clever ways she structures things, and you could see foils throughout this book in parallels, the different ways that either allowing yourself to be persuaded or thinking that persuasion is not a part of your life or shouldn't play a part of your Mm -hmm. life affects the characters and the decisions they make. So the one daughter who jumps off the wall (laughs) because she thinks that what Wentworth wants is just a strong-headed girl. Right, and she won't. No, and be Wentworth pers- thinks that's what he wants. Yeah, and Wentworth does too. So she won't be persuaded off the wall. And then you have Anne, who's just steady. Mary, who has she's just flighty. Right, her dad, who's only persuaded by wealth and pomp and circumstance. Mm-hmm. And so she's clever in the way that she plays with those thematic things as well. Even to the p- sense um, with injury with children mm-hmm. was fascinating to see how she how that'll ripple throughout this book. And she allows these little themes and parallels to come into her story that really helped to knit a story together. So you have two kids, the oldest Musgrove, mm-hmm, the boy. and then also the little boy. And the oh, way yeah, that yeah. then she allows these events to show you things about characters and who they are, right? And you realize Mary is just disgusting. Right. <laughs> but Anne has real character and quality to her because that's really what those two situations are used to, is used for in the novel is to show you the uh, merit of these two sisters. So it's fun watching her do these things and pull out these threads that you don't even notice that she's doing. Good storytelling to have these parallels and stuff like that. that <laughs> to, to that point, this this thing was actually originally, I read just today, released in two volumes. Do you know where the, anybody want to guess where the first volume ended? I may have it broken. Yeah, maybe it's yeah, actually I mean, in our books, actually. I don't. Yeah, uh, it ended right before they go back from Lyme. It's, it basically ends on a cliffhanger. It ends with Louisa. Yeah, bashing her head. Her and... head cracked, yeah. Oh, no, that's not how my my volume two stumps well after that. Yeah, the thing that I read said that originally when it was released, the first volume ended with the Lime stuff. Huh. And then, so she was artful in mm-hmm. the way even that she did something like that. She wasn't unaware of Yeah, they were just, crafting and it had just been awesome. And they were deciding who was going to go. Wentworth takes off. And that's how volume one ends. The other thing you see her playing with in this that I think she does more in this novel than in a lot of her other novels is the obvious relation of class, mm-hmm. even within the upper class. And so yeah. you get to see the her father, then you get to see the real nobility, and you also get to see the new the new nobility with the admirals and stuff like that. And it's you almost feel her. It's hard not to think she has two brothers that did well as sailors. You almost yeah. kind of feel a chip on her shoulder, like. 
Oh, here's the old say. money yep. people, and they're just yeah. dumb Vain cartoon characters. Foppish. And they, they actually don't even have money to back it up. Like, yeah. they, they've just wasted everything that was given to them by God. And now these awesome sailors are making lives for themselves, and they're gallant, and they're cool. Yeah, and Emerald Croft's great. They're yeah. good family men, and they're good people, yeah. and they're good, yeah. Then the relationship between Admiral, we're kind of going all over the place, but that's okay. The relationship between Admiral Croft and his wife was interesting. Yeah. The scene, every feminists like to read a lot into the scene where they're both driving the buggy together. And it's right. like, and Jane Austen sort of definitely it. thought that women should drive buggies, drive buggies just as well as men. And, and lead it was their metaphor, houses. Hmm. It was a metaphor for how, you know, blah, 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 equality. I don't know that I disagree. I think it was a metaphor for the kind of relationship that Jane Austen thought that a man and a woman should have, ideally speaking, and I don't know that she was wrong. I mean, I think she would have believed in things like the submission of a wife to her husband and stuff like that, but she just also saw that a good match is a good match. And He was leading and driving the carriage, and when things needed to be corrected or steadied, she'd lean over and help steady them. Just help steady them, yeah. It's like a good relationship. But that's not how biblical manhood should work, right? You guys, I'm getting married this year, so I need some advice. Oh, you yeah. Guys, you guys would never let your wife correct you on and, and no, like, correct the course she tried to reach over going. and steady us, even if we were about to go off a cliff, I would push her back And then with purposely the turn the wheel off over, the cliff. Off the cliff, yeah. And say, this is where we were heading anyways. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? If I had let you correct this wheel and keep us alive, the consequence would have been worse. Yeah. Right. Our children would have seen you stand up to me. Better dead than whatever you are. Crushed under a wagon. All of this we have while we're... Yeah. <laughs> conversation is happening midair. While you're careening. <laughs> yeah. Careening towards death. Yeah. Right. Certain doom. Jake and Brandon will be giving lectures about their own patriarchal authority as they careen off of a cliff. Oh, yeah. It has been decided. Sounds fun. Commander Daddy. Commander himself. Daddy. Yep. yep. That's right. <laughs> fun fact. <laughs> fun fact. We've got a... Uh, a bobblehead? We got, we got That'd a, be amazing. We got a PlayStation for Christmas, and my <laughs> username is Commander Daddy 84 Commander Daddy 4. 84. 84. 84. I love it. I would buy a Commander Daddy bobblehead. Sure. Just Jake. A Jake yeah. bobblehead. Jake bobblehead with yeah. the... Commander, Commander Daddy, Daddy written underneath uniform it. or something. I would not buy that because it would be really weird <laughs> for me to own weird that. weird for you to own the bobblehead of me. <laughs> Maybe I'd buy one for Jake or one for Amanda or something like that, but no. Our <laughs> listeners can buy them, though. Yeah, sure. Yeah. We can put them in a merch store for all Jake's fans, all the all the, the teenage girls that listen to the booking and have posters of Jake on their walls. <laughs> yes. Oh, Jake. <laughs> oh, Jake. All the screaming fans that try to get our autograph anywhere we go. The reason that Jake has to, can't go out in public and has to wear a mask. and Yep. Definitely why I wear a paper bag when I go out in public. Yep. <laughs> Interesting thing, you actually get more attention by wearing that paper bag yeah. like a weirdo. Uh, where were we? So, it is, does Jane Austen agree with, what's her face, Anne Elliot, that she should have been persuadable when she was 20? Does she agree with Anne? Yes, she does. I, I think she's right. So. Yeah, she's right. Jane Austen, Anne Elliot, and Jake Menzel all, all think that you should waste eight years of your life based on some crummy advice from some old bag. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's what I heard Jake say. <laughs> no. Jake and Jane and Anne all recognize that Anne would have gotten married against her conscience and had a bad conscience about her marriage and spent eight years in the rest of her life potentially with a bad conscience for defying the 
woman that had been placed as a mother over her when she was only 19. And when she was only 19, with a mother dead and a father who was a fop, and the one person who loved her in all the world and cared for her, looked at her and said, honey, this is a bad idea. And she submitted to it. She didn't do a bad thing when she did that. She submitted herself to the one person she trusted most to care for her and love her. She was wrong. The authority figure the was The authority happening. figure was wrong, but that doesn't make Anne wrong for submitting in that case. Yeah, Anne I think that's the key. On, Lady Russell got it wrong. She got it wrong. She was wrong. Yeah. yeah. Jane and Anne and I all think <laughs> that she got it wrong. But in the providence of this book and in this world, although it doesn't always work out this way, it worked out for Anne's good yeah. in the end. In Jane Austen's superior moral wisdom. Well, that's just so interesting to me because I just think, I mean, not to make there are times cheap comparisons, but any modern writer, the moral of this story would be, you listen to the lame authority figure and... Yeah, what you'd end up having is a scene where Lady Russell apologizes, crying. Oh, it'd probably be very moving. Yeah. In fact, I bet there's a movie version. What do you yeah. guys want to bet if we watch one of the movie versions of this? That'll it, be interesting. It would, it would have that scene where yeah. we, we yeah. as moviegoers understand how dumb Lady Russell was. And how sorry Anne is to have wasted yeah, her life what, by listening. Half years, yeah. yeah. But what Jane obviously understands is the beauty of structured hierarchy and order in the world. Yeah. And, and, and that's not to say there's not a time to defy those people. And yeah. Yeah. Please, please consult your pastor before taking any advice from the booking on this matter if you're in the middle of a love relationship. But. but that yeah, that you, is you being exactly the, what Jane when Austen it is your when you are nineteen and your desires are godly and your parents' desires are wicked and demonstrably wicked, then there's a place for or when you're twenty two and or whatever it is. There's a, there's a nice little discussion in in the book about how long engagements are the worst. Mm-hmm. And that was sweet and fun. Say you have the kind of authority figures that think dating for eight nine. 10 years is perfectly okay thing to do and something they want to require of you. Or let's say you went to you, dental school. Let's yeah. say you want to marry someone no, godly. We had, the, we had the same thing. And you've got your whole family saying, we hate God. Don't marry that person. There's just all kinds of situations. So, so the difference is that Mary, uh, Lady Russell had an actual sweet love, even though she was... Lady have, Russell truly had what she thought Anne's best interest yeah. to be at heart. What she also had was faulty judgment. Lots of people can love you and be placed by God in authority over you and have somewhat faulty judgment. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't submit to them. That's different than having an authority over you who is godless or whose desires for you are godless. Then it doesn't really matter how good their judgment is. If their desire and their intentions are godless, that then it becomes a place where you submit to God rather than to men. Mm -hmm. And, that's why you seek out other authority figures that do honor God and do have your best interests at heart to confirm you in that or to counsel you in that direction. You don't make those decisions on your own. Yeah, at the end of the day, Thanks. well, the whole resolution has to do with uh, reconciling Lady Russell and Captain Wentworth. In the end, I mean, her dad is still just a fop and a fool. And Jane, well, just to give an example of a place where Jane Austen would probably be the first to admit who cares what this guy thinks? Well, exactly. I think that Anne would have defied her father if it wasn't for Lady Russell, and that's right. that's the thing is her. She knew by nineteen what her dad was, 
and she knew by 19 what Lady Russell was, mm-hmm. although she may not have been as wise at 19 to recognize or to have the confidence that she now has about her judgment versus Lady Russell's judgment. Right. Yeah, I mean, here's one of the most damning things she's ever said about a father. Sir Walter, indeed, though he had no affection for Anne. That's just awful. Right. And no vanity flattered to make him really happy on the occasion was very far from thinking it a bad match from her, for her. So he just, in other words, he's just indifferent towards this daughter of his because she's not the yeah. pretty one. Yeah, established from the beginning and yeah. reinforced at the end. And so he's just, I mean, he's he is in the running for one of the worst fathers that she created. Listen to this description from chapter one. Vanity was yeah. the beginning and the end of Sir Walter Elliot's character. Yeah. Vanity of person and situation. He had been remarkably handsome in his youth and at 54 was still a very fine man. Few women could think more of their personal appearance than he did, nor could the valet of any new-made lord be more delighted with the place he held in society. He considered the blessing of beauty as inferior only to the blessing of a baronetcy, and the Sir Walter Elliot, who united these gifts, was the constant object of his warmest respect and devotion. Yeah, it's just a disgusting, disgusting creature. (laughs) And it's interesting watching the way she portrays him, like he'll go... Well, he's always talking about other beautiful men mm-hmm. and how striking and handsome they are. And he's also talking, making statements like he's, he's sure that that man will have all the women looking at him, which is just a statement about the way he thinks of himself. Right. He's this narcissist who goes everywhere and thinks every woman's looking at him. Right. For one daughter, his eldest, he would really have given up anything, which he had not been very much tempted to do. Elizabeth had succeeded at 16 to all that was possible. Of her mother's rights and consequence and being very handsome and very like himself, her influence had always been great, and they had gone together, gone on together most happily. His other two children were of very inferior value. Mary had acquired a little artificial importance by becoming Mrs. Charles Musgrove, but Anne, with an elegance of mind and sweetness of character which must have placed her high with any people of real understanding, was nobody with either father or sister. Her word had no weight. Her convenience was always to give way. She was only Anne. <laughs> stab 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 (laughs) well and i love how she lets these characters like mrs norris or like any villain they they generally end up being their own punishment i've took the the last little sentence about it cannot be doubted that sir walter and elizabeth were shocked and mortified by the loss of their companion talking about mrs clay and the discovery of their deception in her they had their great cousins to be sure to resort to for comfort (laughs) but they must long feel that to flatter and follow others without being flattered and followed in turn is but a state of half enjoyment. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty funny. <laughs> and poor Elizabeth ends up being the spinster. Yeah, I mean, she's 30. She's rejected every halfway decent suitor that's ever well, showed up. Because nobody's ever good enough. Nobody Does it, doesn't she signif- just straight up say that there would be no others that come around? Yeah, there, yeah. There, there, there are. She actually goes into present tense. She said there are, she says something like, there are currently no prospects in sight or Nobody of nobody of conse- the kind of consequence that you know is fitting for her. <laughs> Vanity, yeah, kept her from all happiness. If side point about that, it is fascinating how uh, what's the word sort of utilitarian, how unashamed, how frank, yeah. how or, what you found it. It would be well for the eldest sister if she were equally satisfied with her situation, because this, yeah, for a change is not probable there. A change is not currently. As you were reading yeah. this, a change is not probable there. That's really, yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> it reminds me of a very Shakespearean move where suddenly you have the jester coming out on stage and talking right to you. Mm-hmm. Like, here's the play you just saw and 
Now let me just tell you some bone mows as I, as you leave the theater about these people. Right. And we all can just kind of have a joke at their ex, at their expense, but they deserve it. Mm-hmm. As we go to gesture them off stage. She really does reveal her hand at the end of the chapters, maybe of all these books, but the last two we've read, certainly Mansfield Park and Persuasion. At the end, she's just like, here's the moral of the story. Here's what I was thinking. Here's why it's kind of melancholy that Elizabeth, even though she, or Anne, even though she got what she wanted, being a sailor's wife, Anne Easy. Yeah. I mean, she's just like. No, yeah, I, th- I love it because I, I do think it's, Dickens would do it later, the- but it's it's very, it is very Shakespearean in the sense that, or Elizabethan, very theatrical. Mm-hmm. And you've been reading this, it feels real. And then suddenly it's like you're just watching them take the stage down. They're yeah. taking the setting off stage and yep. she's just sitting there. She's just like, you guys watch this. She has a drink in her hand. Right. Cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you some things about these people before you leave. Yeah, the curtain's closed and yeah. then to a woman on a rocking chair, just yeah. like, well, there was a good story, wasn't it? No one of proper condition has since presented himself to raise even the unfounded hopes there which sunk with him. The unfounded hopes. <laughs> yeah. She's so mean. <laughs> the unfounded. We couldn't even say the hopes, but yeah. the unfounded hopes. <laughs> oh, she'd be vicious. I love it. I thought it was interesting. This one, more than the other ones, was where I noticed physical beauty being spoken of the most. And it's weird yeah. just how frank she, Jane, like, Jane Austen is just not ashamed to say, to count that as among a woman's currency and to yep. talk about it really frankly in terms of, you know, Mrs. Clay has kind of a snaggle tooth or something like that, but she's still kind of pretty. She's got freckles and she's got a, yeah, a snaggle tooth, this tooth that protrudes or uh, something like yeah. that. But, but she's still pretty. Mary was always the way. least pretty, but she lucked out because Anne turned the guy down and Elizabeth turned the guy down. And uh, Elizabeth Elliot, by the way, that's fun. Yeah, it is fun. Hashtag a person from the 20th century whose name is the same as. But uh, yeah, I just thought, I don't know if that I have anything profound to say about it, but I thought it was interesting how much of the book was just sort of frank and cheerful and not particularly, to me, it never feels like Jane Austen has a chip on her shoulder about class conventions. And, and this one, maybe a little bit more about the upper crust, you know, the baronet. Well, but he's he's not, the baronet is not really upper crust. Right. The baronet, and she says, is a really cheap title that was given away. Yeah. It's not that this is the upper crust. This is somebody who had conferred on their family a cheap title that was probably sold to the, right. to their family to raise money for something or other. And now it's all he's got, so that's what he clings to. And in order to live up to this title, he's going to spend his daughter's inheritance and go into debt and... Yep. Live like an idiot. And get angry when he has to let his house to an admiral. Right. Who is more admirable than mm-hmm. Nice job, Brandon. Let's see what Thank you did there. Yeah. <laughs> you used two words that are similar. <laughs> Thank you, Nathan. <laughs> I too see what you did. Uh, well, there's more to discuss, but... Next episode. Next episode. Let's do some donor shout-outs real quick. Do it. If you want to be a donor shout out at shouted out, by the way, you go to patreon.com forward slash the book and you sign up for 10 bucks or more a month. Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. The Immortal Chelsea C E. The Immortal Chelsea C E. C E O. You know what? I'm going to change up everyone's name. Robert and Rhonda the Eagles of. Robert Rhonda, the Eagles of so Love. Good. <laughs> Chelsea. The CEO. 
the C E C E O. Chelsea, the C E C E O. The C E C C E C E O. C E C E O. C E C E O. C E. The wheels on the Nathan go round and round. The wheels on the Nathan go round and round. I didn't say they'd be good. <laughs> I never promised quality. I was trying to figure out if that was actually it. <laughs> Jimbo <laughs> and Anbo. Jimbo and Ambo. <laughs> Lillian, Lillian, the bladed lawnmower person. Lillian, the bladed <laughs> <laughs> Lillian, the bladed lawnmower person. You just want to make us say these things. <laughs> Andrew and Esther, who sit upon the precipice wherein the world falls to destruction. Andrew and Esther, who sit upon the precipice wherein the world falls to destruction. Bravo. <laughs> Jenny, inscrutor bot. <laughs> Jenny, inscrutor bot. <laughs> 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 the angelic John and the bright smiling Jill. The angelic John and the bright smiling Jill. Keith, I'm Keith. I have muscles. Keith, Keith. Keith, I'm Keith. I have muscles. Keith, Keith. <laughs> David's <laughs> mouses. <laughs> What? what David's you have to actually give the name of the David's mighty mental institution. David's mighty mental <laughs> institution. That's not bad. He's paying you. I'm sorry. Getting to me. Mother Beth. Mother Beth. Lahem. Hem. Jeremy. We'll just give him his because he just earned it recently. The Dark Hooded Lord of Death. Jeremy. We'll just give him his because he got signed up recently. The Dark Hooded Lord of Death. The Absolutely stunningly gorgeous. Eric and Catherine. <laughs> Danny the Dude. <laughs> the absolutely stunning and gorgeous Danny the Dude. And mm, Meredith. And Meredith. Jumpin' Jellybean Joanna Jukeman. Jumpin' Jellybean Joanna Jukeman. <laughs> uh, is she related to Andy? Nope. Well, maybe. Maya Antonia. Maya Antonia. Uh, I'm so sorry, folks. We will never do this again, but we're going to see it through. Oh, we will do this again. He does this every couple of months. <laughs> I've never changed up all the names like this. Yes, you have. No, I haven't. Pretty sure you have. Uh, Brandon, you can go back and listen to every episode, or you owe me $100. And I don't want you to tell me you whether listener, you confirm- I bet you a listener will point it out for us. Yeah, tell us the episode where I changed all the names and didn't use any... Of the old names. Is somebody keeping up our Wikipedia page yet? <laughs> the booketing wiki? wiki yeah. Yeah. Uh, we need the, we need a sanity verse wiki. Yeah. The booketing. Rhinor be- and Judiopolis. Migo? I thought I did the last one. Rhinor and Judiopolis. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel! Daniel! Sammy. 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 Jay. Jay. Gatsby. Gatsby. And. And. KT. KT. Who. Who. Sound effect. 
Benjamin and so Dana. Like Benjamin and Dana. Uh, the the likable, likable, and powerful, and powerful. Eric and Eric and Catherine, the bearded and the beautiful. Eric and Catherine, the bearded and the beautiful. <laughs> 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 What was that? I don't know. Joel Professor. Joel Professor. Excale. <laughs> Excale. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> Hey, the Booking Today was written and produced by Nathan. It featured Brandon and Jake and Warhorn Media brought it to you. Go to patreon.com forward slash the booking to give us money. Thanks for money. listening. We'll be back. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs>